This is one of the things you, you learn when you meditate is that often, you know, you'll be, say, like feeling bad in whatever way. And then your mind will create stories about how things are that justifies you feeling bad. Yes. Right. And so like I will then I feel bad. And so like that person behind me and to the right is a jerk. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. Every year, Claire and her partner challenge themselves to do some really hard thing. This year, her partner decided to run a marathon with no preparation. And Claire, well, she decided to pick something equally hard, maybe harder. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I am a director of recruiting for a IT consulting firm. And I always joke that I talk for a living. That's my job. So in 2022, I was thinking about what would be one of the hardest things that I could do? You know, I'd heard about a Vipassana retreat and didn't know much about it, knew a couple of people who had done it, but thought that given my life and how I lead my life, which is constantly doing and not necessarily being, I thought a Vipassana retreat would be incredibly challenging, but also potentially really rewarding. If you don't know what a Vipassana retreat is, don't worry, neither did I. Turns out it's an ancient form of meditation from India. And the retreat that she's talking about requires total silence, meaning she won't be able to speak, write, read, make eye contact, or otherwise communicate for five days. Okay, so Claire, how many days away are we from the beginning of the retreat? Uh, it's next Monday, so six days. You said that normally you're a talker. You talk for a living. You like to talk. So as you're approaching this retreat, what are your feelings? Because I feel like I'm constantly doing something or thinking about my to-do list and trying to cross something off my list or on my phone, I have this nervousness around not doing anything other than being with yourself. So part of that is super exciting to me, and part of that is terrifying. I don't know what to expect, and hence why I'm on this podcast. I'm a planner and a preparer. Taking that leap is, again, exciting, but also a bit terrifying. Uh, all right, so to help prepare you for the upcoming retreat, we dug up a clip of one for you to hear in advance. Um, Rosie, can you play that? There it is. That's the clip. <laughs> we thought that would be helpful. How did that feel? <laughs> I was like waiting on the edge of my seat. Okay, what am I going to learn? <laughs> Sorry, we couldn't resist. Daniel, did you know what we were going to do? What were you thinking? I, I thought that might be what was going to happen. <laughs> I love it. When we first reached out to this week's expert, he was actually on a silent retreat. But luckily, we were able to snag him to talk to us just in time for Claire's retreat. My name is Daniel Thorson. I live at a place called the Monastic Academy in northern Vermont, where we spend a lot of time meditating and teaching meditation. And, you know, I'm 35 now. So I, I like to say I've spent more time on silent retreat than anybody my age has any right to do. You know, <laughs> I've spent like well over a year at this point in, in silent retreat. 
your voice is very soothing. I don't know. Is that always been true or is that something that you've... <laughs> no, that's totally something that comes from meditating a lot. Really? Yeah. <laughs> no, I guess partly a joke and I think it's partly true. You know, like as you meditate, you just relax your body. Yeah. And I think that your vocal cords are part of your body. Hmm. <laughs> it's also just a funny thing. <laughs> yes. Daniel's going to help prepare Claire for her week of silence and, along the way, help the rest of us learn the power of just being still, even if it's for five minutes, not five days. So find a seat, take a deep breath, and quiet your mind. We'll be right back. So we wanted to share a milestone of sorts. Our little show, How To, has been around for three whole years now. That means we've had the privilege of inviting more than 150 of you into the studio to workshop your problems, right alongside the smartest, most compassionate experts we could find. So first of all, thank you. We rely on listeners like you to bring us your questions, big or small. And in exchange, you get the chance to talk to some world-class experts for free. What a deal. Also, you'll notice that we often use first names only out of concern for your privacy, and sometimes we even allow pseudonyms for especially delicate subjects. So this is just a friendly reminder to let you know that we are here for you. The How To Hotline is always open 24-7. Email us at howto at slate.com or leave us a voice message at 646-495-4001. Also, please keep sharing these episodes with your friends or family members who might benefit from a little dose of hope and empowerment right about now. The more people who know about us, the more people we can help. Thanks. Daniel Thorson was only 19 when he attended his very first silent retreat. It was a little bit longer than Claire's, lasting 10 days. Now, you might be wondering, what would compel a 19-year-old to do such a thing? Well, at the time, Daniel was struggling with depression, and he'd also read about some new neuroimaging studies that were showing how meditation can literally change the human brain. It was enough evidence that it kind of broke through my skepticism about meditation. I, I kind of thought it was just something that hippies did because they were confused or something like that. Um, and I started meditating on my own and it helped a lot. I was very depressed at the time. And um, the more I did it, the more it helped. And so eventually I, I decided to do one of these retreats and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It was, I, I don't want to, you know, color your expectations, Claire. So I'm a little bit worried about sharing my experience. No, please, but please, uh, please do. It was the worst, it was the worst experience of my life. <laughs> Okay, this is what I need to hear. This is good. I like vowed as I was leaving the retreat center that I'd never do another retreat in my life. Oh, wow. I barely made it. Can I ask why? Oh, it's just extremely painful. I mean, it turned out that the things that I was avoiding by doing were just tremendous psychological, emotional, and even physical pain Mm -hmm. um, that I was forced to be with for hours and hours and hours and hours and days. Yet, you did do it again. I did, many times, yes. Why? 
it's a strange thing, you know, it, um, in a way that I don't think I could have articulated at the time, like clearly to myself or to anybody else, those 10 days had made me clearer, like in the sense that it was easier to tell what mattered to me. And it was uh, less common that I would be kind of taken over by mm, thoughts mm. and feelings and actions that were antithetical to what I care about. I could tell it was a step towards um, a kind of freedom that was very tangible and, and um, beneficial. Hmm. You feel like you could tell that even after your first one or? Yeah, yeah, even after the first one. Okay. Even after the first one. Um, for some reason, I don't exactly know why, but like, you know, six months later, the thought came, oh, I should do another retreat. Hmm. Or I wonder what it'd be like to do another retreat, even though it was the worst experience of my life. You know, every every retreat is completely different. And it might be the case for you, Claire, that, and this is true for some people, that it's just completely wonderful, your first retreat. You know, everybody has a different mind. Here's our first takeaway, and it's kind of a cold, hard truth. Being silent, alone with your thoughts for days on end, is pretty grueling for most people. But that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Almost everything for me was pretty hard about it. Like, you know, I was in college at the time, so I would usually get up at like 8, 9, sometimes 10 a.m. And on this retreat, you had to be in the meditation hall, I think, at like 4.30 a.m. So that was pretty challenging. I started to see all the ways that my I'm like kind of um, helpless. Mm. Like my mind will just do things. Like it will just think about things or it will ruminate on things or fixate on things that as far as I can tell, all that does is cause me pain. And there's seemingly nothing that I can do about it. Um, I just felt like my, my face was kind of like smushed into this this kind of underlying reality that I was generally structuring my life to not experience and time would slow down like I don't know if you've ever been in a great amount of pain but time just takes longer each hour felt like a day often so it sounds like part of the pain was in realizing how much we're trapped in our thoughts by our thoughts that kind of sense of powerlessness <laughs> whereas you can't distract yourself with like you know, playing Wordle or <laughs> talking to a friend. Exactly. Um, so yeah. you're just stuck with that realization. And it's not like a conscious decision, but your mind just stops doing those things because it finally sees that it's causing itself suffering. Oh. Right. So it's like, that's, that's kind of the journey that you go on is you're like, oh, like you just kind of get more clarity about how it is that you cause yourself pain. And then just like, you know, if you put your hand on a hot stove, You and this is often a metaphor they use, you just remove it. You take your hand away because it's self-evidently painful. And so as you sit and observe your mind and see the ways that it's causing suffering, then you will eventually get the picture and stop doing that. It can just, depending on how ignorant you are, like I'm a very stubborn person. It took me a long time <laughs> to, to stop. And so uh, some people are quicker studies than others. And were they typically things like in your life that you're worried about or, mm -hmm. you know, slights or injustices or... Totally, all you know, of or it. Was, okay. Or was it like something in the room, like this other guy next to you is snoring, he fell asleep during the meditation, how rude, you know, it's stuff like <laughs> oh, that. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, for sure. One of the things that my mind would do that was <laughs> so like looking back on it was funny, but the time was very painful was I would, it was almost like a kind of OCD thing where it would like divide the time that I had left into smaller and smaller fractions. Uh-huh. Like, okay, I have f- six days left. That's uh, 10 hours a day of meditation. Each hour is 60 minutes. So I have like 600 minutes. I'm, you know, 30 minutes into a 60 minute meditation right now. So I have X number of minutes. And Don't I, give me any ideas. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't recommend that, Claire. I would not recommend that strategy. That's not one that they'll teach you, hopefully. <laughs> Claire, what are you thinking, like hearing this? Like, have you ever noticed this, this phenomenon of your brain kind of just, you know, wrestling with things that don't actually help you? Oh, yes, all the time. I should also mention that at this retreat center, we meditate in 45-minute increments. Mm. So once a week, I've been building up to 45 minutes. Forty five minutes. training. Total. I've been training a little bit. That's awesome. Yes. And I will say uh, on Sunday, I set my timer and didn't know it at the time, but it did not start. So I was sitting there. It felt like I was meditating forever. Mm. And I finally, quote unquote, cheated, right? And looked and here we are. The timer didn't didn't start, but I had gone for an hour. So Mm. that's a positive. Um, But I will say it really took away from the experience, right? Because I am just constantly sitting here thinking, when am I going to be done? Daniel, what do you do about the self-talk? Because I've noticed this with myself. When I first started meditating, the first realization I had was just how tedious and petty most of my thoughts were. Like they were like sometimes I catch myself drafting emails in my head that I needed to send. Them yes. to. It's like, oh my God, really? <laughs> so then you start, you know, judging yourself and scolding yourself, which, you know, just get these layers upon layers of negativity. Mm-hmm. Any advice for dealing with that? Yeah. So it's just really bearing witness clearly to the activity of the mind is what over time clarifies it. And so it's when we kind of get involved and feed the reactivity and the kind of like self-consciousness and the reflexiveness and, you know, kind of thinking about our thought or thinking there's a thought that arises that we shouldn't be thinking. And, you know, then we think a thought about how we shouldn't be thinking about not thinking. And you can kind of like, it can just be infinitely recursive. And so instead you kind of, what they do and they call it in Zen, you take the backward step and you just sit back and observe. And often, you know, many practices use the breath as a kind of anchor to support that kind of uh, non-reactive observational stance. And then, you know, eventually you will more and more just stop doing it. Your mind will stop producing those thoughts because it's not conducive to well-being. And and you you do fundamentally want to be happy and at ease. Hmm. So it's almost like there's a natural arc where you do finally realize, oh, my hand is on a hot stove. <laughs> it just takes us a while. It's totally to natural. Yes, yeah, totally natural. And, and, and so a big hmm. part of that is, is just having kind of a, a sense of faith. That's our next insight. At the other side of all this suffering, there's freedom. The chance to be really liberated from your thoughts, which sounds amazing and also pretty intimidating. What if on the way to that liberation, you find you just can't take it any longer? 
certainly um, almost every course that I've ever been on, there's somebody who is watching out for everybody and noticing if people are exhibiting signs of a kind of breakdown. And then they'll usually pull them aside and, and talk to them and uh, try to make sure they have what they need. Or even for some, in some cases, if it's uh, more appropriate to leave the course, you know, this is, this is a really intensive um, thing to do. Uh, just like a marathon, it's not appropriate for everybody. You know, some people, when they stop doing discover things that you know it's actually not the appropriate space to go through they actually need support i know that also they and you have to fill out a questionnaire before you go and in the questionnaire they do ask if you have a therapist and if so if you're comfortable sharing their contact information in case that's needed so i thought that that was interesting Mm, as well and supportive yeah what was the closest you ever came to breaking your silence? Like, what was mm. most tempting? Or to leaving, to being like, I got to get out of here. Oh, well, I almost left that first retreat. You did? I almost left the first retreat because I, um, I, I had counted the number of days wrong. Like, I thought I had, oh, you know, no. two days left. But then I, I, I talked to one of the course coordinators, and they're like, oh, no, there's oh, there's no. three days left. And I was just shattered. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I was so upset. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I can make that. <laughs> But other than that, you know, you know, for, for me, being silent, I thought would be challenging. I think a lot of people experience this is actually just a great relief. It's weird. It's weird. I thought that would be a hard, the hard part. That doesn't end up being the, the challenging aspect for most people. Now that I'm in a community that practices together, I'm often tempted to like tell my friends jokes or something like that, that I think that they would enjoy. <laughs> but, but other than that, I don't feel like a sudden pressure to, to break silence usually. Yeah. Like I would find it very hard to not make eye contact or try to connect with these strangers who are around you. I mean, how do you, do you end up communicating non-verbally or does it just take a few days to get used to that? It takes a few days. You end up projecting on people a lot. You end up really, Hmm. you know, there's a, there's a way that you get to know people by having conversations with them. And there's a way that you get to know people when you're just in a space together going through something like this. And one of the really fun things that I'm sure you'll discover, Claire, is that at the end of the retreat, usually there's a period of time when you get to break silence and be together. Mm -hmm. You actually feel very connected with the people that you were on retreat with, even though you've never spoken. Mm -hmm. There's a very common experience that's called Vipassana Vendetta and Vipassana Romance, which is that you end up finding one person on retreat that for whatever reason you just hate. You just can't stand them. <laughs> the way they walk into the hall, the way they sit down, the way they cough, you know, um, it's just infuriating. And then similarly, there's often a person that you fall in love with without ever having talked to. There's actually been, uh, you know, marriages that have occurred after retreats <laughs> because their projections ended up being accurate. They really were somebody that huh. they loved. But often you talk to them and you're like, oh, you're not at all who I want you to be, <laughs> who I made you to be in my mind. So interesting. It is. That is fascinating. Do you remember having any vendettas? Oh, yeah. Or I have romances? vendettas. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have any romances that I can Dang recall. It. I did have, there was somebody that I really didn't like on that first <laughs> retreat. I just kind of like located all of my antipathy for the retreat in them. And uh-huh. uh, they were, afterwards, I got to know them and they were perfectly nice. <laughs> I felt, I felt well, kind of bad. What was the story your brain made up about them that turned out? Oh, they were they were sitting behind me and to the right, and they just made more noise than I thought mm. they yeah, should. Course, you know, yeah. um, they would sometimes breathe quite loudly, mm. and ah, um, worst. Uh, yeah, the worst, the worst. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm sure, like me, you're dying to know if Claire is going to have a Vipassana vendetta or even a Vipassana romance. We will find out, I promise. But first, we're going to hear about what happens when you return from a silent retreat and the world isn't how you left it. That's right after this quick break. Way back in March of 2020, while most of us were trying to make sense of this crazy new virus sweeping the globe, watching YouTube videos about how to sew your own masks and Zooming with our loved ones, Daniel was in a cabin, all alone. I went into my 75-day solitary retreat the day after the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic for covid And so for about three months, the first three months of the pandemic, I was just in a cabin without access to any news or communication with anybody. And so I had no idea. That sounds fantastic. (laughs) That is like amazing timing. (laughs) (laughs) And so I didn't know, you know, it could have been anything from descent into Mad Max-like anarchy, or it could have been like, uh, we all got a different kind of cold, and it's not that big Uh a deal. And I had no idea. Uh When I came out... The most striking experience was going to the supermarket. This was maybe five days after I left retreat. And you could only go one way down an aisle. And I think Mm -hmm. I didn't really notice that. And I went down the wrong way and I got really dirty looks from people. Like I was was making a huge (laughs) error. And so there was a lot of like kind of social norms that had been established while I was gone that I didn't, I just had to kind of pick up on. There was a lot more uh, anxiety so you could, it was palpable, oh, this yeah. new layer of tension For and sure. fear. Huh. That's interesting. And I think we forget just what that was like and the toll that that has taken. At the time, I wasn't sure if I was happy that I'd missed it or kind of mm-hmm. sad. Like I felt a little bit left out, you know, that everybody yeah. had gone through this really significant experience together that I wasn't a part of. Um, and so I felt really out of sync. You don't, I assume, try to catch up with it, you know, in general, when you miss a chunk of time because you're on a retreat, do you just kind of accept the gaps in your knowledge? I am a bit or have been a bit of a news junkie, and I like to stay connected with um, what's happening. And and I realized after the first five or six retreats that nothing really happens. Like if if I need to know something, (laughs) people Mm -hmm. will tell me. Hmm. People yeah. will tell me. And and so there's this kind of sense that I ought to be checking in with the world every day. But mm. I don't know if that actually checks out. Hmm. That's interesting. That's another way in which you get clarity, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Like you, you really do think like, oh my God, what did I miss? I was mm-hmm. gone for 10 days. And then you look and you're like, hmm, nothing. Nothing, <laughs> yeah. really, nothing really happened. Yeah. Except for that one COVID time. <laughs> Except for that COVID <laughs> Most thing. Yeah. Of the time, <laughs> that definitely yeah, happened. You're like, yeah. this is the same stories over and over. Right? Yeah. That, I, that, that was a big, that was different. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, I know you have, because you're a planner, you have a list of questions for Daniel and I would love you to just, let's do a speed round where you are able to ask as many of those as, as you can, as you want to. Okay. I love it. Well, I'm curious, you know, I'm, six days out, so I can't prepare too much more, but I'm wondering if there's anything you would recommend doing before I head out over there on Monday. 
you're already doing probably the most important thing, which is to increase the time that you sit and to like learn what it's like to sit for longer periods of time. And then the other one is to, is to really reflect on your intention, right? Yeah. Like why are you doing this? You know, really working to clarify um, why this matters to you. And then when it gets really hard on retreat, you can recall that clarity of intention and that can um, encourage you, you know, add hmm. some more courage to you and um, help you weather the storm you might be in. Yeah, help me get grounded. I like that. Okay, this is our next insight. Whenever you prepare to do something really hard, whether it's a silent retreat or a marathon or even starting a company, articulate what you're doing it for. Maybe even write it down so you can go back to it over and over when you need it most. Um, going back to the first part, you had mentioned posture and sitting or, yeah, sitting for as long as I'll be sitting. Because I can tell you when I sit cross-legged, uh, my feet fall asleep in about 15 minutes. <laughs> so I must be... Totally, totally. And, you know. But there is, there is like a period of adaptation, right? Like here we often call uh, the difference between fake pain and real pain. Mm. So real pain mm. is when you sit and you have pain and then you get up and it's still painful for like minutes after you get up. Okay. Fake pain is when you sit and it's painful and then pretty much as soon as you get up, it's gone. Hmm. And usually, almost in all cases, that's just pain that the body is actually holding that can be let go of. Uh, hmm. And so learning to distinguish between those two is really important because you don't want to do a damage to your body. And if you're sitting in a way that you know is painful for a while after, you should change your posture. And speaking of that, has there been times where you're on retreat and you start to fall asleep? And if oh, so, totally. what do you do? Human beings get sleepy for all kinds of reasons. Um, sometimes it's because we just didn't get enough sleep. Other times, and it, it, probably in your case, if you're used to getting up that early, we'll get sleepy because we try to get out of being with what is here now. Yes. You'll just kind of like, instead of experiencing like a difficult emotion, you'll just get really sleepy. <laughs> and, and that will be a kind of strategy that you have to deal with pain. Uh -huh. And in that case, the typical advice is to uh, straighten up your posture, you know, because usually you'll start slumping over and just try to observe the sleepiness as clearly as possible. Okay, okay, so observe the sleepiness without falling asleep. <laughs> this is definitely easier said than done, which is why sleepiness is officially one of the five hindrances to meditation. Here are the other four that Claire needs to watch out for. So there's craving, which is like a desire for some experience that's not here. The second one is uh, aversion, which is kind of not wanting an experience that is here. Then there's restlessness or anxiety. And then the last one is doubt, usually doubt in the practice or doubt in one's self or doubt in the um, teachers that are there. That seems helpful to know going in, right, Claire? Because yeah. then you can like label it as it comes up and not feel like it's necessarily true. Tied to it, yeah. I was going to say I can definitely envision having all four of those. Or so I think there's five. five excuse me. All five. <laughs> I'm already I'm already doubting. That I think I personally would have twelve. Yeah. <laughs> 
five of them. You're already doubting, you said? Yeah, I'm already <laughs> doubting that there's even five and only focusing on four. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> What do you recommend when I'm re-entering the quote-unquote real world after this mm. retreat? Yeah, totally. It, it's really hard to explain to others. And so you'll probably have this experience where people will ask you what it was like. Uh-huh. And the experience itself will likely be really, whether it's challenging or beautiful, will be really meaningful to you. It'll be a really like, rich experience that will be very difficult, if not impossible, to actually communicate to people. Be at peace with the fact that you're kind of doing something that you can't explain, even to people that you're quite close with. They won't really totally understand what it was like. Um, The other is that, you know, this is a practice, and so it's all about consistency. And Mm -hmm. doing it for 10 minutes a day is better than doing it for an hour every three days. The more that you can do it, the more that you'll sustain the benefits and the more that you will change your mind. Also, whatever you can do to integrate insights you might have had about what you learned on retreat is a good idea. If you get clarity about something like in that kind of situation, you get that clarity and then you don't do it, Mm -hmm. that can be undermining to the trust that you can develop with yourself, right? That your your heart, your being is willing to reveal this mm. kind of clarity and then you don't do it. That's not, you know, you, you want to do it. You want to do the thing that became clear that you ought to do. So that's really, really important. Does any example come to mind? Oh, sure. you've gotten clarity and done something? Oh, so many. Yeah. I mean, so like, you know, the first maybe dozen retreats I sat, I would often, I would end with a list of people that I needed to apologize to. Mm-hmm. And um, I did. I did apologize to those people. And that was great. But in other cases, you know, there was, there was a time when I, it became clear that I had to leave a job that I was at. And then I, I did. I did. And it was, hmm. it was the right move. And that reminds me of one of your uh, pieces of advice for Claire was to keep the intention that you have going into this foremost in mind when you're struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it makes me wonder, Claire, you know, you've mentioned some reasons for doing this, right? Like that um, it's a real challenge. It would be it's sort of the opposite of your normal life. Do you wish that you had more kind of peace of mind internally? Or what, what do you think is the intention? Yeah, I think I don't give myself the space to really know myself. I think that, you know, those who know me, so I have two psychologists as parents. I, um, two. two. Wow, that's, yes. That's and I'm lot. an only child, so <laughs> you can put the pieces oh, together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that I do a lot of work on growth and examining my life, but I think that I get stuck in this hamster wheel of going, 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 that I don't have that clarity that Daniel's talking about. And I talk about it all the time. I talk about it with my therapist of, okay, well, journal or stop and pause and just be, and I don't do it. And I am, you know, as you mentioned, Amanda, one, something I like is a challenge. And so if I'm, if I'm going after something, I typically do it, but I've had a block with this. And so, you know, I think I want to be in an environment that will allow me or force me, if I can say that, to mm-hmm. stop and get quiet because I don't, I haven't done that. And so, you know, I think it's Mm. hard to say, well, what's going to happen when that 
happens. And I think that's the exciting and terrifying part. I see. So it sounds like because you have a, you said you have a block with this, that suggests to you that there is something deeper. There is something underneath to go back to what Daniel said. And you're curious about what that is. And you're not, you're aware that your discomfort might be something to lean into. Is that right? That was beautiful. If I, if only I could have said it like that. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Claire, is there anything, any last questions you had for Daniel before we wrap up? I'm curious, and this might be too personal for you to share or might not want to share, but what has some of your intentions been? Oh, yeah, I'm happy to share. So I, I practice now mostly so that I can, um, I would say, kind of be a person that I can be proud of being. Another way of saying this is so that I can die without regrets. Mm-hmm. And how that lands in my life is in particular with my relationship with my my niece who's named Sabine and I get emotional just (laughs) talking about it Um, I want and and it's something like I want to be able to look her in the eyes and tell her that I did what I could to be good at this time of of what I see as a kind of planetary crisis like I want to be able to really be in integrity when she asks me how I live my life. I love that. Hmm. I so appreciate you sharing because that's, I, I could get emotional thinking about it too. So yeah, you've been so helpful, Daniel, in answering my questions and getting me more prepared. Well, I really appreciated your questions, Claire, and I'm really excited for you. And um, I, I don't know if there's a way, but I'd love to hear how it goes for you. Of course. True to her word, immediately after her retreat ended, Claire called us and left this message. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Danielle. Hi, how-to listeners. Well, I made it. Uh, And honestly, it was such an amazing experience. I don't even know where to start in talking to you all. Um, But I'll say that I definitely encountered all five hindrances over this past week, uh, most notably restlessness, desire, and doubt, and a lot of physical pain in sitting for so long. But I was able to take Daniel's advice and continue to remind myself of my intention for being there, which worked better than I expected. Also, I wanted to tell everyone I did not have a Vipassana vendetta, nor did I have a romance, but it was definitely fun to think about both during the countless hours I had to think. At the lowest of my lows, I think I was sitting on my cushion counting to a hundred over and over and singing the song Sweet Caroline. I have no idea why that was in my head. And at my highest of my highs, I felt really at peace and like I could sit on my cushion for hours, which is something I've never experienced before. And the last thing I'll add is that I I really wasn't ready to leave today. It felt like a true 10-day Vipassana retreat would have been incredibly impactful, but at the same time, I'm not complaining. It was one of those experiences I think I'll truly treasure for a lifetime. So thank you, Daniel, for your wisdom and your advice. It definitely calmed a lot of the nerves I had before heading to this retreat. And thank you, Amanda and everyone at How To for having me on the show. I'm incredibly grateful. Bye, everyone.
I'm so happy you survived, Claire. That's awesome. Thank you for letting us know. And a huge thanks to Daniel Thorson for sharing his wisdom. If you want to hear more of his very calming voice, look for his podcast, Emerge, which we'll link to in the show notes. And finally, some breaking news from the how-to headquarters. Some of you may remember an episode we did a while back about how to run for office without being an a-hole. It turns out it can be done. And now we have definitive proof. We got word that one of our guests on that show, Vermont State Senator Becca Ballant, just won her primary race for Congress, meaning she is well on her way to national elected office without going negative. Thank you, Becca, for proving what is possible. What about you? Do you want to do something really hard and just aren't sure where to start? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. How-To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produces the show with help from Katie Shepard. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by senior technical director Merritt Jacob. We had mixing help this week from Kevin Bendis. Charles Duhigg created the show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.